welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. We have a an Israel story here from the Los Angeles Times of Monday, November 28, 2022. Israel's new government government poses a U.S. foreign policy headache by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The Biden administration is grappling with how to deal with a new Israeli government that will be the most right-wing in that country's history and may stand in the way of core U.S. goals for the Middle East. The new government will be led by Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister who was ousted from the job just a year ago and is on trial for corruption. To regain the position, Netanyahu formed an alliance with controversial political figures known for their extreme anti-Arab views, probably dooming any peace deal with the Palestinians. Dealing with the Netanyahu-led government will also pose major challenges for the Biden administration, which desires a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and broader acceptance of Israel in the Arab world. Republicans in the U.S. who are eager to cast themselves as true friends of Israel are sure to question any Biden administration's criticism of the new government. Netanyahu and the GOP have grown closer over the last decade, undermining a long period of bipartisan support for Israel. In 2015, Netanyahu, whom congressional Republicans had invited to address a joint session of Congress, used the speech to criticize President Obama's nuclear deal with Iran. Former President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and recognized the Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights, delighting Netanyahu. Just last week, Netanyahu delivered a speech to the Republican Jewish Coalition, a partisan group. Netanyahu and President Biden have both said that U.S. support for Israel should remain bipartisan. Netanyahu's new allies may make that difficult, however. Some U.S. officials have already privately indicated they will not meet with the Itamar, with Itamar ben Givur and Bezalel Smotrich, two likely members of Netanyahu's government. Ben Givur and Smotrich advocate recognizing illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank, where most Palestinians live, and eventually annexing most or all of that territory. They oppose a a separate Palestinian state. Netanyahu needs their support to cement a majority in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Their support could also help him pass a law that would allow him to dodge his corruption trial. The two men have also called for a far harsher crackdown on Palestinian militants and their supporters, including strict curfews in Palestinian villages, mass deportations, and targeted killings of terrorism suspects. They have advocated making it easier for Israeli security forces to live to, lo- to use live ammunition against Palestinian protesters who throw stones. Ben Givur has also expressed affinity for the late ultra-nationalist rabbi Meir Kahane, whose ideology the Anti-Defamation League has described as reflecting racism, violence, and political extremism, and whose organization until recently was listed as a terrorist group by the U.S. government. For years, Ben Givur had a poster of Baruch Goldstein, an Israeli-American terrorist and Kahane disciple who killed 29 Muslim worshippers in Hebron in 1994, hanging in his home, according to Israeli media. In 2007, an Israeli court convicted Ben Givor of incitement to racist violence and support for a terrorist organization. 
Ben Guevara and Smartrich want to head the ministries of public security and defense respectively, portfolios that have the closest contact with U.S. officials. On Friday, Netanyahu's Likud party and Ben Guevara's Jewish Power Party announced an agreement for Ben Guevara to become security minister. This country is a democracy that elected a leadership and I intend to work with them, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Thomas N uh, Nides, NIDS, said in an interview with Israeli media, adding quickly, that said, we have to stand up for the things that we believe in. That's what American values are about. We have a very strong ally in the state of Israel, but there will be times when we will articulate when we believe our, dif our differences are. Uh, Nidus and other U.S. officials have stated that the two countries' points of disagreement include expansion of Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank and the possible annexation of the territory. The administration will have to decide what the real red lines are, said Michael Koplow, a senior analyst with the Israeli Policy Forum, a U.S.-based pro-Israel organization that advocates the two-state solution. This will test U.S. boundaries on all fronts. Negotiations to form the government are underway and could take days or even weeks. A fair amount of horse trading is part of the process, so it remains unclear which politicians will assume which posts. Netanyahu offered Smotrich the finance ministry instead of defense, according to Israeli media, but Smotrich has so far given no indication he will budge from his initial demand. We provide nearly $4 billion a year to the defense ministry, and we do want to put our money in the hands of these guys. And do we want to put our money in the hands of these guys? Said Daniel Kurtzer, a former U.S. ambassador to Israel who now teaches at Princeton University. I'd say no. Netanyahu is reported to be considering Ron Dermer as his foreign minister. Dermer served as Israel's ambassador to the United States starting in 2013 and through the Trump administration, with which he was especially friendly. He arranged Netanyahu's 2015 speech to Congress. Dermer's appointment would be a poke in the eye for Biden, Kurtzer said. Republicans remain eager to criticize anything short of unquestioning support for Israel from the uh, Biden administration. After the Israeli government revealed that the U.S. Justice Department had launched an inquiry into the May killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu uh, Akhli near the West Bank city of Jenin, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, demanded that Attorney General Merrick Garland and everyone involved in this debacle be fired or impeached. Multiple investigations by independent <clears throat> human rights and journalism organizations have concluded that an Israeli soldier probably fired the shot that killed the veteran journalist. Israel eventually acknowledged that one of its soldiers was probably responsible. No one has been disciplined. If the new Israeli government decides to try to annex the West Bank, it would jeopardize the Abraham Accords, a deal brokered under the Trump administration that opened business and some diplomatic ties between Israel and several Persian Gulf states, such as the United Arab Emirates, that had previously refused to recognize Israel's existence. The UAE's entry into the agreement was predicted on was uh, was predicated on Netanyahu in his previous stint as prime minister. Uh, back, um, backing away from plans to annex West Bank territory. If they push too far, it will foreclose any movement for, forward in regional relations, said Aaron David Miller, a former U.S. envoy for the Middle East, now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. 
Merely thinks Biden and Netanyahu will attempt to uh, avoid overt conflicts to safeguard their own domestic and global positions. Biden wants to avoid a public wrestling match with Netanyahu, Mueller said, and Netanyahu craves the international stage and is intending to strut on it. Publicly, U.S. officials remain cautious, saying they want to see what kind of government Netanyahu ultimately forms, reiterating their ironclad commitment to Israel while emphasizing American values that include freedom and prosperity in equal measure for Israelis and Palestinians. The administration has right to be concerned and to telegraph those concerns, Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat of Maryland, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said in an interview. He is one of several Democratic lawmakers who are firm supporters of Israel, but have raised alarms over potential members of the new government. These U.S. lawmakers include Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey, who chairs the committee, and California Representative Brad Sherman, Democrat of Northridge. But Ben Giver further alienated the Biden administration officials by taking an electoral victory lap at a memorial service for Kahane, who was assassinated more than 30 years ago. Celebrating the legacy of a terrorist organization is abhorrent. There is no other word for it, State Department spokesman Ned Price said in an unusually strongly worded uh, commitments. We remain concerned by the legacy of Kahane and the continued use of rhetoric among violent right-wing extremists. Ben Givar has reached an agreement with Netanyahu that would allow him to vastly expand police powers and remove officers from overnight by the oversight by the by other legal authorities. Naming a person who has been convicted of terrorism-related charges uh, to head Israeli national police, uh, Israel's national police force has alarmed numerous Israelis. It means that the police will become politicized to favor the extreme right, the liberal Israeli newspaper Haaretz said in an editorial last week. Those who are supposed to be safeguarding democracy have turned into soldiers at the, at the service of politicians. That's what happens when those accused and convicted of crimes take control of the institutions charged with maintaining law and order. The prospect of a Ben Givor run police force has alarmed American supporters of Israel. Ben Givor has promised a no-holds-barred crackdown on terrorism and increased police and border security presence, Yulia Shalomov, a fellow at the U.S.-based Atlantic Council think tank, said in a recently web appearance. His party has, consi- has consistently stoked domestic, ethnic, and societal tensions, she said. Netanyahu's right-wing partners will also push for other legislation that would not only have an impact on Palestinian and other Arabs, They have threatened to take rights away from the gay community and make it impossible for many non-Orthodox Jews to gain Israeli citizenship. Many U.S.-born Jews are members of more progressive branches of the faith, such as Reform or Conservative Judaism, and might not be able to obtain Israeli citizenship under the proposed law. That was Israel's new government poses a U.S. foreign policy headache by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 28th, 2022. Okay, on to other international news. This is from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 27, 2022. Struggling to restore water and power. Zelensky says millions have their electricity back, but many others remain in the dark. From the Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. 
Ukrainian authorities endeavored Saturday to restore electricity and water services after recent Russian military strikes that vastly damaged infrastructure, with President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that millions have seen their power restored since blackouts swept the war-battered country days earlier. Skirmishes continued in the east, and residents from the southern city of Kyrgyzstan headed north and west to flee after punishing and deadly bombardments by Russian forces in recent days. The strikes have been seen as attempts at Russian retribution against Ukraine's beleaguered but defiant people after Ukrainian troops liberated the city more than two weeks ago following a Russian occupation that lasted many months. The key task of today as well as as well as other days of this week is energy, Zelensky said in his nightly televised address late Friday. From Wednesday to today to today, we have managed to have to have the number of people whose electricity is cut off to stabilize the system. He said, however, that blackouts continued in most regions, including Kiev, the capital. In total, more than six million subscribers are affected. On Wednesday evening, almost 12 million subscribers were cut off, Zelensky added. He allowed himself a rare show of peak of how, about how Kiev authorities were faring, alluding to many complaints with the rollouts of points of invincibility, public centers where residents can stock up on food, water, battery power, and other essentials in the capital. Uh, please pay attention. Kiev residents need more protection, he said. As of this evening, 600,000 subscribers have been disconnected in the city. Many Kiev residents were without electricity for more than 20 or even 30 hours. I expect quality work from the mayor's office, he said, alluding to the administration of Mayor Vitaly Klitschko. The president and the mayor have sporadically sparred since Zelensky took office in 2019. Zelensky has accused Klitschko and officials around him of corruption, while Klitschko contends that the president's office has put him under political pressure. Early Saturday, the Kiev municipal administration said that water connections had been restored throughout the city, but that about 130,000 residents remained without electricity. City authorities said Saturday morning that all power, water, heating, and communication services would be restored within 24 hours. The scramble to restore power came as Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo met Saturday with Zelensky in Kiev. De Croo tweeted that Belgium was releasing new humanitarian and military aid but gave no immediate details. Meanwhile, Ukrainians were marking the 90th anniversary of the start of the Holodomor or, or Great Famine, which killed more than 3 million people over two years as the Soviet government under Joseph Stalin confiscated food and grain supplies and deported many Ukrainians. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz marked the commemoration by drawing parallels with the impact of the war on Ukraine, a key global supplier of wheat, barley, sunflower oil, and other foodstuffs on world markets. Exports from Ukraine have resumed under a United Nations broker deal, but have still been far short of pre-war levels, driving up prices. Today, we stand united in stating that hunger must never be, never again be used as a weapon, Schultz said in a video message. 
That is why we cannot tolerate what we are witnessing, the worst global food crisis in years, with abhorrent consequences for millions of people, from Afghanistan to Madagascar, from Sahel to the Horn of Africa. He said a World Food Program ship was in the process of delivering Ukrainian grain to Ethiopia, and Germany was adding an additional $10.4 million to efforts to help expedite grain shipments from Ukraine. In Kyrgyzstan, residents continued to flee or try to. A salvo of missiles struck the recently liberated city for a second day Friday. I have no money. I can't even buy gas for the car, said Irina Rusnovaska, standing on the street near the bodies of three people who died in a strike Thursday. She said she wanted to take her family to western Ukraine or out of the country. About 100 Kursan residents hopped aboard a government-chartered train in an organized evacuation Friday, and buses were expected to ferry others to shelters in the cities of Odessa, Mykolaiv, and Kriol Re, the Ministry of Reintegration said. That was struggling to restore water and power from the Associated Press. Out of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 27, 2022. Okay, and back home from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 2, 2022. Jury to decide if Weinstein is falsely accused or a predator. If convicted, former Hollywood Titan could face what could amount to a life term in prison. By James Queeley. In summing up the case against Harvey Weinstein for jurors this week, Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Marlene Martinez didn't hold back. Projecting images of wolves, bear traps, and a barrel-chested Weinstein letting loose a belly laugh, Martinez described the disgraced film titan as a craven hunter who made a sport of preying on women and exerting his influence as one of Hollywood's most powerful men to keep them silent. He used that power to live his life without the repercussions of his predatory behavior. There's no question that Harvey Weinstein was a predator, Martinez said Wednesday at the end of a month-long trial. For this predator, hotels were his predator. Hotels were his trap. Confined within those walls, victims were not able to run from his hulking mess. People were not able to hear their screams. Weinstein, 70, faces two counts of each of forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, and sexual battery, as well as a count of sexual penetration by a foreign object uh, stemming from allegations made by four women who said he attacked them in upscale Beverly, uh, Beverly Hills hotels between 2004 and 2013. Weinstein's defense attorneys finished their closing arguments late Thursday, and jurors should begin deliberating by Friday afternoon at the latest. If convicted of all charges, Weinstein faces what could be, what could amount to a life sentence in a California prison. He is currently serving a 23-year sentence in New York, where he was found guilty in 2020 of raping other women. The trial has been an emotional grind as eight women took the stand to recount brutal attacks they allege Weinstein committed that scared them and in some cases torpedoed their dreams or act to act or write in Hollywood. On more than one occasion, Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Lisa Lynch paused the proceedings as accusers broke down while testifying. Weinstein has denied all wrongdoing. 
At the start of his closing argument Thursday morning, defense attorney Alan Jackson dismissed the prosecution's case as smoke and mirrors and an attempt to seize on the broader hashtag MeToo movement, which erupted in 2017 when a wave of women came forward to accuse Weinstein and other powerful men of abuse. Prosecutors, Jackson argued, put forth no evidence to corroborate the women's accounts. Five words that sum up the entirety of the prosecution's case. Take my word for it. Take my word for it that he showed up at my hotel room unannounced, Jackson said. I take, uh, take my word for it that I didn't consent. Take my word for it that I said no. Along with the four women whose allegations formed the basis of the charges against Weinstein, four others testified at the trial as prior bad acts witnesses. They described similar assaults Weinstein allegedly carried out in New York, Puerto Rico, London, and Toronto. The Times does not identify sexual assault victims unless they have identified themselves publicly. Several of the women who testified against Weinstein in Los Angeles previously disclosed their alleged abuse. Among them is Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who said she first met Weinstein when she was a struggling actress in, her mid, in the mid-2000s, before her marriage to Governor Gavin Newsom. During two days of testimony, Siebel Newsom recounted how a purported business meeting with Weinstein at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills drove it dissolved into what she described as a grotesque game of cat and mouse. Weinstein, she said, emerged from, the, from a bathroom in a robe while masturbating. She recalled how he spent 45 minutes trying to coerce her into sex. I'm shaking. I'm crying. He knows this is not consent at all, she told jurors through tears. Lauren Young, a former actress who also testified against Weinstein in his New York trial, described a similar uh, bait-and-switch in which he met at the, in which a meeting at the Peninsula at 2013 to discuss a screenplay was quickly relocated to a hotel suite, she said. Jules Bindi, a former masseuse, uh, said she uh, said after she gave the mogul a massage in a hotel room in 2010, Weinstein followed her into the bathroom, groped her, and masturbated. Now I know I can trust you. We're close friends, Weinstein said after the attack, according to Bindi. An Italian model, identified in court as Jane Doe, one testified that Weinstein showed up at her Beverly Hills hotel room after midnight one night in February 2013. Once inside the room, she said, Weinstein forced her to perform oral sex and then raped her against a sink. I wanted to die. It was disgusting. It was humiliating. Miserable. I didn't fight, she said. Throughout her closing arguments, Martinez highlighted the similarities in the women's accounts of how Weinstein allege, allegedly uh, got them alone and assaulted them. She accused Weinstein and women who worked for him of following a well-worn playbook. Weinstein's assistant, Bonnie Hung, once assured a woman identified as Ashley M. that she would be, she would be present for a 2003 meeting in a Puerto Rico hotel room, but then closed the door to the room as soon as the dancer stepped inside the room with Weinstein where, she allegedly, where he allegedly abused her. In another incident, Martinez said a woman named Claudia Salinas set up a meeting between Young and Weinstein at a Beverly Hills hotel, then closed a bathroom door behind Young before Weinstein allegedly groped her. These are eight women who do not know each other. They've never even met, Martinez said, yet they all describe the same conduct by the same man. 
Martinez also criticized Jackson and co-counsel Mark Worksman for assailing the women during the trial. In his opening statement, Worksman referred to Siebel Newsom as a bimbo. And after Young testified about how Weinstein stripped naked before allegedly groping her, Jackson removed his own jacket with a quip that he wouldn't undress any further, don't get scared. The line drew groans and gasps from onlookers in the courtroom. Jackson and Worksman have repeatedly claimed uh, the assault on J. Doe 1 and Young never happened, and they described Bindi's and Siebel Newsom's accounts with Weinstein as transactional sex meant no further meant, meant to further their careers. During his closing argument, Jackson pulled on that thread, questioning uh, why some of the women stayed in touch with their perpetrated rapist. Jackson reminded the jury that Kelly Sifford, uh, who said she was raped by Weinstein at the Toronto Film Festival in 1991, accepted his invitation to audition for a role in Manhattan for a film 17 years later and again went into a Toronto hotel room alone with Weinstein. Sifford testified she had wanted to confront Weinstein, an explanation Jackson dismissed as absurd. Her story makes absolutely no sense. It's a farce, Jackson told jurors. Jackson continued with the strategy Thursday, zeroing in on what he said were the inconsistencies in the stories and behavior of Weinstein's accusers. He questions how Jane Doe 1 could have been raped when records show a fire alarm was going off in the hotel at the time of the alleged attack. And he pointed to emails Siebel Newsom sent Weinstein after the alleged rape about upcoming film projects and political donations for her husband. Jackson dismissed Siebel Newman's test, emotional testimony as an act and told the jury to focus on facts over feelings. That was Jury to Decide If Weinstein is Falsely Accused or a Predator by James Queeley from the California section of the uh, Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Okay, on to some entertainment news. First from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, November 25th, 2022, Noah Baumbach delivers Doomsday. The director, known for drama, amps things up to cataclysmic in White Noise by Josh Rottenberg. If you were looking for a director to stage a spectacular cataclysm on screen, Noah Baumbach pro uh, would probably not be on your shortlist. Baumbach sharply observed... Uh, often personal movies include 2005's The Squid and the Whale, 2014's While You Were Young, and 2019's Best Picture nominated Marriage Story have featured plenty of relationship disasters and emotional blow-ups. But there have been no actual explosions, no big car crashes, no visual effects. We had to deal with blood a little bit in Marriage Story, Bombuck said dryly referring to a scene in which Adam Driver's character accidentally cuts himself while attempting to perform a knife trick. But that's about it. So when Baumbach was prepared to adapt author Don DeLeo's seminal 1985 postmodern novel, White Noise, he knew one of the biggest challenges would be filming the book's dramatic centerpiece, a mysterious... Uh, a mysterious airborne toxic event... Uh, that descends upon a small college town, forcing its residents, including the brainy, neurotic Gladney family, to evacuate in terror. 
a dozen films into his directing career, Bombach felt ready to tackle something on a bigger scale. There was a different kind of planning, just finding the right people to help, but it was exciting, he says. To be clear, White Noise is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a typical Hollywood disaster movie. Like the novel from which it is faithfully adapted, the movie, which hits select theaters Friday before arriving on Netflix on December 30, is a satire of the many ways Americans try to distract themselves for, from their own fear of mortality, throwing themselves into consumerism, entertainment, conspiracy theories, and pharmaceuticals. Mashing up quirky comedy with elements of sci-fi, horror, and noir, all of it shot through with heady ideas, the film is all but impossible to categorize. It's a sort of a meditation on death wrapped in a love letter to the 80s and sometimes a screwball comedy. Don Cheadle, who co-stars alongside Driver and Greta Gerwig, offers by way of description. You know, one of those. For a year, De Leo's novel was considered unfilmable. The book takes place in a world that feels shifted off a few degrees from our own. Its characters, including the Hitler Studies professor Jack Gladney, driver, his wife Babette Gerwig, and their precocious children, speak in deadpan aphorisms that, while often funny, are difficult to translate into real life. It is dense with big ideas, but as a narrative, it's oddly structured and episodic. But Baumbach, who has loved the book since first reading it as a teenager on the advice of his writer father, was undeterred by the trickiness of the material. I was really interested in adapting the tone and the particular strangeness of the book, which is also very familiar, says Baumbach, who has earned two Oscar nominations for original screenplay, but had never before adapted someone else's work. There are many movies that have these unreal unreal tones to them when you're like this is totally not what I expected but also feels very much how the world feels to me. There are filmmakers like David Lynch who have made whole careers out of that. One of the novel's most famous sequences is an airborne toxic event that is unleashed <clears throat> when a train carrying noxious chemicals is derailed in an accident. The rock band Airborne Toxic Event founded in 2006, took its name from this section of De Leo's novel. As the vaguely menacing cloud drifts toward the unnamed town, the Gladneys and others flee, gripped by varying degrees of panic, even as they are now unsure where they are fleeing from. What they are fleeing from. In approaching De Leo's novel, the airborne toxic event represented to Baumbach both one of its most inherently cinematic elements and one of its most potent metaphors. In its undefined threat, one can read the inescapable specter of death or the planet's looming environmental catastrophe or the dangers of unchecked technology or the collective penchant for paranoid conspiracy theories. Shooting the film in Ohio during the Delta surge of the COVID-19 pandemic, the airborne toxic event took on a whole new meaning for Baumbach and his cast and crew. The juxtaposition of a fictional airborne threat with a real airborne disease, each frightened with, uh, freighted with uncertainty and fear, made for a uniquely De Leo-esque sense of absurdity. During those evacuation scenes, you would hear the AD say, OK, now everybody take off your masks and put on your period masks, said Baumbach. 
You didn't feel the remove from the craziness we were all experiencing. It was one of those things that was kind of self-evident, said Cheadle, who plays Jack Gladney's friend and fellow professor, Murray, who studies Elvis. We're walking around with masks on, and everybody's got hand sanitizer. Everybody knew people who were getting sick. The relationship between the subject matter and what we were going through, the existential dread that everyone was feeling at different levels, was not lost on us. Visually, the disaster combined with the movie's 80s period setting offered Baumbach an opportunity to pay tribute to some of the blockbusters of that earlier era. In the Gladney's harried escape from the cloud in their station wagon, Baumbach saw echoes of the Griswold family's comic travails on the road to Wally World and National Lampoon's vacation. Shots of crowds looking up at the sky in awe and fear evoked uh, Steven Spielberg films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In the novel, De Leo offers little description of the toxic cloud itself. We all had ideas about what it might look like, says cinematographer uh, Lowell Crawley. You can look at the end of Ghostbusters, for example, where people are looking up at the building and see a very similar kind of aesthetic. It was a matter of finding a balance where it didn't look hokey, given that it's referencing these things from 40 years ago, but still paid homage in some way uh, to those movies. To achieve the look of the toxic event, Bombach wanted to keep the visual effects as, as old school as possible. In the end, the cloud was created with a combination of matte paintings and the kind of cloud tank work that has been used for decades to achieve various atmospheric events. I wanted the effects to feel aesthetically of the time, Baumbach says. Essentially, how I would have gone about it back, in, back then is how we feel about it now. To me, that felt more beautiful and more appropriate than doing something that was entirely digital. In that same spirit, rather than relying on digital effects, production designer Jess Goncourt and his team corralled scores of period 80s vehicles to make up the convoy of cars jamming the road out of town, a massive logistical challenge that required closing down a, second, a section of a highway for months on end. I think at one point, we had a couple of hundred cars. It was incredible that we were able to obtain that many said Goncourt. Police cars, ambulances, Winnebago's, school buses. It was a major undertaking to get all of the cars together and be able to line them up and actually have them moving. I've never seen anything like it. In the end, Bombuck leaves it to the audience to decide exactly how to interpret the airborne toxic event. But in its sense of looming, ill-defined peril, he sees a metaphor every bit as ripe with meaning in 2022 as it was in 1985, if not more. The book allows for so much interpretation, and I didn't want to narrow these things, he says. We create this sort of dance for ourselves daily to not acknowledge our mortality, and at the same time we're putting all these images of death in our entertainment and following horrible stories with a kind of delight because it's happening somewhere else or it feels unreal to us. And the airborne toxic event is essentially bringing all of that death and horror to our doorstep. But you know, in a funny way. That was Noah Baumbach Delivers Doomsday by Josh Rottenberg. 
from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 25th, 2022. Okay, and here is something from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 27th, 2022. Radical Lit's Punk Empress Gets an Apt Bio. Eat Your Mind tells the life story of the late transgressive writer Kathy Acker by Jessica Ferry. Kathy Acker is the perfect subject for a literary biography. Her work is unreadable. Her allure is undeniable. She died a tragic death from breast cancer at age 50. She was a bodybuilder. She was a feminist. Then again, maybe not. I'm so queer I'm not even gay, she said. She struck a fierce pose, tattooed, mounted a motorcycle. Mounting a motorcycle. She once forced Neil uh, Gaiman to whip her... Whipper P, even in death, she is deeply intimidating. My mom looked through my books during a recent visit, picked up my copy of the latest book on Acker, Jason McBride's biography, Eat Your Mind, The Radical Life and Work of Kathy Acker, and said, Who is this about? What is this about? What indeed, Mom? Acker has become a small-scale personality cult. She represents a kind of deconstructivist punk empress. Her work, with its collage of classic texts and her own biography, has influenced countless writers. Her name dropped is a calling card. Kathy Acker is hardcore. Growing up in New York in an affluent neighborhood with a mother who concealed uh, their Jewishness and the fact that her husband had walked out the moment he learned she was pregnant, Acker performed toughness from, uh, from a young age. She was from the streets, even if those streets might have been the Upper East Side where Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller were neighbors. Especially after the death of her stepfather, the family, family's affluence was far more precarious than it seemed. On Christmas Eve 1978, with less, with less than $30 in her bank account, Acker's mother checked into the Midtown, Midtown Hilton and took her own life. When Bob Dylan becomes mostly most uh, when Bob Dylan becomes most fully Bob Dylan, switching religions and spining violent fantasies, it's art. When female artists do this, it's unhinged. Yet like Dylan, Acker wasn't on this earth to make friends. She was such a cat, such a sea, Ellen Miles tells McBride, but the fact is, she got she had every F day and wrote. It was her religion. That's why she was here. That's awesome. That's awesome for a woman. That's awesome for a woman to say, I have that. Then deliver. McBride is a card-carrying member of the Acura cult. But he's also ready to acknowledge her problematic moments, of which there were more than a few. Acker once called poets the white ends of this earth and described herself being Jewish as a woman of color. McBride plays interference. Empathy has its limits. It can be misguided. All trauma is not created equal, he writes. But Acker herself never really acknowledged this and refused to let it impinge on her freedom as an artist. For someone who only ever saw fixed identity as a trap, this isn't surprising. The personal is a political is political, sure, but it oftentimes but oftentimes the biographies of female artists are too eager to make the monster into a victim. McBride resists this through speaking to those who knew his subject and aren't afraid to be frank.
Acker was so determined to be a writer, you get the sense that she would rather marry a guy than work a job that was beneath her. She married twice. My last job was selling cookies, she said. It was so bad, I was 31 and said, I can't do this anymore. Sentences out of my mouth for, uh, for hours. What cookie would you like? It's shocking to learn that this is McBride's first book. He's mag... He's magnanimous when it comes to Acker's critics, and he can paint a picture of New York's queer art scene almost as vividly as Cynthia Carr in Fire in the Valley, her biography of the artist David Wojnowicz. But Carr was one of Wojnowicz's friends. McBride never knew Acker. Eat Your Mind effectively interlaces Acker's books with events in her life. Even more crucially, it places her in the grand scheme of letters, tying her ideas to predecessors, including Julia Kristeva and Helene Sios, and contem to contemporaries such as Miles and Lynn Tillman, and to those who have come after her, Cade Zambrano and Sheila Hetty among them. Acker received some pretty harsh reviews in her lifetime, reviews that claimed her work had nothing to offer, calling Calder writing nasty and cantankerous. It's not a stretch to compare this line of criticism to the reception of contemporary novelist Otessa Moshve. She's a different kind of uh, kind of writer, the late Sylvie Lotringer said of Acker. She became a writer in spite of her writing. I think what Lotringer meant is that Acker had something to say and a struggle was figuring out how to say it. Uh, she, was on a she was on a climb, scholar Avital Ronell said. Like many writers, she had that narcissistic motor. That meant if it wasn't on her GPS, she didn't want to hear about it. She didn't want to be stalled or slowed down. And McBride, for his part, writes, She didn't know that time was running out, but then she'd always lived as if it were. Some of the fascination we have with certain late artists concerns the question of who they could have been or what they would have achieved had they lived longer. Things did get weird at the, at the end for Acker. A friend, sensing she wanted touch, felt Acker up on her deathbed, after which she kissed the air. After she was cremated, some of her friends ate her ashes. They were delicious, Kevin and Killian said. I felt her energy entering my body. It's easy to want a piece of the creative action without the baggage of the artists themselves. Narcissism, ambition, and flagrant disregard for others in service of art is perhaps only enviable in the abstract, particularly when it comes to women. Tillman thought she and Acker were friends, but you were always Kathy's friend, Tillman said. She was never your friend. Eat Your Mind does everything a good biography should, uh, should and more. McBride remain, reminds us that there's something deeply romantic still about the costume of the artist that Acker wears as, uh, so well. For readers and consumers, that performance is enticing. For the artist performing, it can be destructive. Writing is one method of dealing with being human, Acker writes in Memoriam to Identity. In order to write, you kill yourself at the same time while remaining alive. That was Radical Lit's Punk Empress Gets an Apt Bio by Jessica Ferry from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 27, 2022. Ferry's most recent book is Silent Cities, New York. 
All right, and here's this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 28, 2022. Mussing on a Hidden Jewish History. Director Carrie Perlop sheds light on Tom Stoppard and his new play, Leopoldstadt, by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Leopoldstadt, Tom Stoppard's stunning new play on Broadway about a highly cultivated extended family in Vienna that was decimated in the Holocaust, isn't autobiographical. But the work springs from the Czech-born English playwright's long-deferred examination of his Jewish roots. In 1999, Stopper published On Turning Out to Be Jewish in the inaugural issue of Tina Brown's Talk magazine. The death of his mother in 1996 prompted him to search deeper into his heritage. He knew bits and pieces about his background, but not the extent of the tragedy that befell his relations after Hitler rampaged through Europe. In his late works, Stoppard has been more willing to confront his personal history, but his method is to, imag is to imagine alternative versions as in his play Rock and Roll, which considers the life he might have led had he gone back to Czechoslovakia instead of mo moving permanently to England after his father died during the war and his mother married a British Army major. Leopoldstadt, which is at Broadway's Long Acre Theatre in a production directed by Patrick Marber, unfolds as a series of oil paintings magicked into life. The play, which features a cast of 38 actors, moves from turn-of-the-century Vienna, where Freud, Mahler, and Schnitzler are the talk of the town, to 1924, where the scars of World War I are clearly visible. Performed without intermission, the action ominously leaps to 1938 as the Nazis are ransacking the homes of Jewish citizens. The play concludes in 1955, where three families, uh, three family survivors reunite to piece together the fate of their murdered relatives. Author of such modern classics as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, The Real Thing, and Arcadia, Stoppard is revered for his clever wordplay, inventive wit, and breathtaking comic adventurousness. A quick study able to assimilate libraries of material on philosophy, science, history, and mathematics, he has an uncanny knack for making the, the esoteric entertaining. The Oscar-winning screenplay he co-wrote for Shakespeare in Love translates to the screen this gift for uh, turning erudition into hijinks. Leopoldstadt is a play that only Tom Stoppard could have written. It's not just that the work mirrors aspects of his personal history, it's also the virtuosic way that he conjures the shifting culture, cultural zeitgeist of Vienna in the first half of the 20th century through stylized conversation alone. Carrie Perloff, the former artistic director of San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater, who has directed 11 productions of Stoppard plays, including several West Coast premieres, has written an, an, an invaluable book, Pinter and Stoppard, a director's view, Bloomsbury Methuen uh, Publishing, which considers the Jewish identities of these English playwrights, infusing her personal knowledge of the artists with their practical experience of staging their work, Perlaf sheds light on what makes Leopoldstadt distinctive yet wholly integrated into Stopper's Au revoir. Question. In your book, you argue that through Stoppard, uh, you argue that 
though Stoppard often says that he has no idea what it means to be Jewish, since he does not practice the religion and does not feel a part of any coherent group, there is something to his in his delight in pedagogy, dialectic, argument, and finding the work the, the perfect word that connects him clearly to a long line of Jewish thought and intellectual behavior. You quote a character in Leopoldstadt who proclaims we literally worship culture, a sentiment clearly shared by his author. How else do you see the complicated story of Stoppard's identity playing out in his bodies of work? Answer. The more I have dug into Stoppard's biography, the clearer it has become that in spite of appearing to be a quintessential Englishman, he's always been an outsider. He once said he occasionally feels like he's in England on a press pass. So many of his plays feature doubles or, or characters with divided selves, Houseman slash A-E-H in The Invention of Love, the two, the two Habgoods in Habgood, etc., which harkens back to Stoppard's own fascinatingly uh, bifurcated identity. His work is about the longing to know coupled uh, coupled with the impossibility of ever really knowing against echoing the story of his own life and his own hidden Jewish past. Knowledge is everything to Stoppard. I think that's why he and I have always gotten along so well. We're both happiest when we're learning something new, particularly something obscure and irrelevant but thrilling like ancient Greek verb forms or chaos theory. He also writes endlessly about memory and loss, how the past disappears, how culture must be fought for and held onto in the wake of relentless philistinism and misunderstanding. Somehow the burning of the book it, books is never that far away, even in plays like Arcadia. Question. Your mother distinguished literary critic Marjorie Perloff, who fled Vienna with her family in 1938, was a resource for Stoppard. How did her story influence his writing? So, answer. Stoppard has always admired my mother's work so much. And when he read her memoir, The Vienna Paradox, about escaping Vienna in 1938, he was captivated. He asked a million questions about her family, her apartment, the lifestyle, the intellectual circle she grew up in, the lead-up to the Anschluss, and the atmosphere in Vienna in the 1930s. In April of 2018, Stoppard headlined my farewell gala at ACT, and then he and his wife Sabrina drove to L.A., and he spent a day with my mother talking about Vienna between the wars. She came from an assimilated Jewish family called Mintz, who, like the Merz family in Leopoldstadt, literally worshipped culture. Like the Merz family, my, mother, my mother's family was quite secular. They were distinctly Jewish and certainly never tried to pass, but had a Christmas tree, that kind of thing, just as Stoppard sh uh, shows in his play. My mother tried to explain certain strange contradictions to Tom. It wasn't a word he knew that well, and it's very hard for outsiders to fathom how it worked. Question. Stoppard doesn't tell his own uh, family saga, thrillingly recapped in, in Hermione Herm, Lee's recent biography. But he does have a surrogate in this play, a character named Leo, who, like him, had the good luck to find refuge in England. They also have in common the ambiguous luxury of maintaining a selective history historical memory. How do you see the connection between Stoppard and Leo? Answer. 
After years and years of saying he lived a charmed life, I think Stafford began to feel culpable for not knowing about, let alone honoring, the huge tragedy that befell the rest of his family. He and his brother Peter got out with his parents, but nearly everyone else in his family got gassed by the Nazis. So he's pretty self-critical. And in Leo, he created a truly naive, perhaps too naive character who was blind to his own family history until forced by his relatives to reckon with it. No one is born at eight years old, Nathan, a fellow family survivor, tells Leo in the final scene. But you live as if without history, as if you th uh, throw no shadow behind you. This is such a vivid indictment of Stoppard's own behavior and a remarkable admission uh, uh, for the playwright to make to make about his own relationship or lack thereof to his Jewish past. Question. Stoppard is 85 years old. Do you suspect Leopold Stott may be his last major work? Answer. No. Tom was only happy when he's writing a new play. He's always had ideas in his mind. We talk about them all the time, so I suspect he's going to keep going. He has such appetite and curiosity for life. That's what makes being with him such a joy. Question. Given the horrific resurgence of anti-Semitism in public life, the play seems especially urgent now. But is Leopoldstadt too large for most religion, uh, regional theaters to produce? Who in California, now that you're no longer run, running ACT, would be willing to fight for the play? Answer. Sadly, this is not a moment for nuanced dialect, dialect, dialectical dramas, and certainly not for ones with such a huge cast. But as you say, it's a really strong and necessary moment for work that explores Jewish history and identity. And there are always many ways to produce a play. I think it would be possible to do a beautiful version of Leopoldstadt with a similar cast, more intentional doubling and a less, less massive design, and still get to the beating heart of the play. I've already created a potential casting scenario. Given my own family history, it would mean a lot to me to see the play have an American life. That was Mussing on a Hidden Jewish History by Charles McNulty, theater critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 28, 2022. All right, here's this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, November 28, 2022. Comic and Mom Tackles Parenting Today. Natasha Leguero shares her wry takes on having kids in a new essay collection by Rachel Brodsky. How is a woman supposed to do it all? This is one of the many central questions with Natasha Leguero's hysterical new book, The World Deserves My Children, a laugh-out-loud collection of essays that falls somewhere between a memoir and a volume on parenting advice. Reclining on a white sofa in a Silver Lake home studio, she shares with her husband and fellow comedian Moshi Kasher, Laguerre expounds on her train of thought. Like in the 50s, women were cleaning all day long, and they were expected to raise the kids. But now we're all expected to have jobs. It's just a lot. And how do you do it? It's super challenging. I think I was trying to process all of that. Last, uh, lest you think of, yes, lest you think Legero is thinking of joining TikTok's stay-at-home girlfriend collective. Yes, that's a thing. Don't worry, she's definitely not. By all accounts, Legero is busier than ever, hosting the TBS culinary whodunit show Rat in the Kitchen, and a relationship advice podcast, The Endless Honeymoon, which she records with Kasher. 
Plus, as of August, she's currently developing a single-camera comedy called Buffalo Tense with her friend and former Another Period co-star Ricky Lindholm for Fox. Still, Laguerre would be the first to admit that having a kid and all of the myriad gender-specific challenges that lie within that decision can be unfairly one-sided. If you're in a traditional say-hate partnership, the division of household labor is one of the many subjects Laguerre unpacks in The World Deserves My Children, along with Freezing Your Eggs, Geriatric Motherhood, now 48, Laguerre became pregnant at 42, Traveling with Kids, It's Not a Vacation with a Baby, It's Paying Money to Do Chores in, in a Pretty Location, Opting to Have Kids in the Face of Worsening Climate Change and a Pandemic, How Not to Raise a Brat, there's a particularly funny passage about becoming a nut milk sommelier for her child, and much more. Best known for her eviscerating stand-up, Laguerre digs into all of these topics with the type of wisecracking commentary normally reserved for her take-no-prisoners crowd work, uh, Netflix specials, and Comedy Central roasts. At the same time as she does on The Endless Honeymoon, Laguerre injects every joke and wry observation with a dose of genuine heart and sincerity. Even the book's cover has a mix of visual gags, with a glammed-up Laguerre scrubbing dishes with her daughter while her daughter plays on the very messy floor. Meanwhile, out the windows, a fiery atom bomb explodes in the distance. Though she started writing The World Deserves My Children pre-pandemic, Laguerre says her book was heavily influenced by her family being forced into lockdown, a stage of COVID-19 that millions of parents of small children will be able to relate to. Before the pandemic, I was planning to on outsourcing at least 40 hours a week with my child and having a nanny help me so I could work or having someone help me clean a little bit. And I wasn't able to have any of that, Laguerre says, adding that it had not been had it not been for the pandemic, Moshi and I would have been uh, Moshi would have been on the road and then I would have been on the road. Maybe my child would have been would have stayed with her grandparents. Instead, Laguerre and Kashner who both regularly take their comedy on tour, had to stay put without any help, an outcome Laguerre calls challenging, but is ultimately grateful for. It was actually a really great time. I'm so glad I got to do it because I would have never been able to otherwise. I think our family is really close because of it. The World Deserves My Children was actually one of 20 or so potential titles Laguerre tossed around when considering how to summarize her book. When you say the book's title, I wanted it to be intriguing, Laguerre says. I was thinking Apocalypse Mom or Old Mom, but it was all dancing around the same things. Once I had this title, it felt like it encompassed everything that the book was about. While she spends a large portion of the World Deserves My Children discussing IVF, pregnancy, and children rearing in a time of environmental panic, Laguerre also devotes time to recounting her own childhood growing up in Rockford, Illinois, with a single mother and two younger brothers. She also talks about her early days as a child actor, not child star. She is careful to draw a distinction, moving to New York and Los Angeles to pursue comedy and converting to Judaism for Kasher. It is one of the better religion, Laguerre cracks. I mean, it's intellectual. Women can be involved. They ask questions. The rabbis are there to consider things as opposed to a pulpit that's like, points of finger, this. 
this, this. And then of this sexual misconduct is the undertone of that. It's really dark. Catcher actually shows up about three-fourths of the way through The World Deserves My Children. Near the book's end, Leguero transcribes a dialogue where the couple interviews each other around how their parenting roles differ. Kasher calls himself Chef Fun Officer, Chief Fun Officer, and whether Kasher could have handled pregnancy, among other things. As to why she wanted a back and forth with Kasher in the book, Laguerre says it offered her husband a chance to redeem himself. With me ragging on him for the entire book, a lot of that stuff was stuff I was feeling, and the book was a way to get it out, Laguerre muses. We were basically in a house together that neither of us could leave for two years. It was driving me crazy, and I was making him making fun of him a lot. He's so articulate, I knew he would be able to articulate the difference between the mother and the father, and him saying that he's the chief fun officer. Laguerre, for her part, looks at her own heightened anxiety around keeping their daughter safe. It's true in a way, she adds, of Catcher's CFO designation. I feel like I learned from him in that, in, in that interview. He said, there's absolutely no way that if you're completely fearful that something's going to happen to your child, that your child is not going to absorb that in some way. When he phrased it like that, Laguerre said it helped her realize that it's actually not good for your kid to be in such a constant state of fear. And the pandemic made me even more fearful, because I'm like, is she allowed to go get a haircut? Is she allowed to touch a railing outside? I was already feeling scared, and then the pandemic happened. And it was really challenging for me, she said. The comedian also hopes to clear up and call out some of the harsh realities around fertility, particularly when you're in your late 30s. If you can afford it, she strongly recommends that women freeze their eggs before 38. Because then, if you do think that it's something you want to do with your life, you don't miss the opportunity, she reasons. It really does afford women an extra decade, at least. One thing she hopes readers get out of the book is a real look at all of the mysterious science behind fertilization. You've got to make all these decisions, Ligero said. There's like 20 things that nobody tells you. All the science is so new and it's still not understood completely. So I wanted to help people understand all the different components and I hope it's entertaining and makes people laugh. Anyone, whether they are parents Want to want to be parents or have decided to remain child-free will appreciate the way Laguerre, who herself considered a child-free life in her 20s and 30s, acknowledges the absurdity in in having children in the this day and age. It's the way Laguerre definitely considers both angles to the parenting equation, but for reasoning that yes, the world, though broken, really does deserve her children. You hope that you can spark interest in the world and that your kids are going to help a part of the, uh, be a part of the solution, Laguerre concludes. If there's something that's going to be made, it's going to make our world better, optimistically, it probably will come from them. I don't know how that's going to happen, but you can have only the Christian right having all the kids, right? So if you're up for it, why not? Do it. Then try to show them a cool life. That was Comic and Mom Tackles Parenting Today by Rachel Brodsky from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 28, 2022. Okay, and now we have this one 
from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 29, 2022. Disney won't sell to Apple. Returning CEO Bob Iger rebutes rumors in a highly anticipated Town Hall Monday. By Ryan Founder. While Disney Company's returning chief executive Bob Iger threw cold water on the idea of selling the company to Apple or acquiring other major companies during his highly anticipated Monday town hall for employees, according to attendees who are not authorized to comment. During a Q&A session with ABC7 Eyewitness News co-anchor Leslie Sykes, Iger also stressed that the need to make Disney Plus profitable and signaled that cost, that cost management measures, including a hiring freeze and travel restrictions, would remain in place even though they were started by his ousted predecessor, Bob Chappick. Her, uh, he also addressed the controversy over Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay law and the planned relocation of 2,000 employees to the Sunshine State. The meeting came just over a week after Disney's board suddenly fired Chappick on a Sunday night and replaced him with Iger, who had previously served as CEO for 15 years. Chappick was Iger's hand-picked successor, but a number of high-profile missteps and a troubling earnings report contributed to Chappick's exit just a few months after the board gave him a three-year contract extension. On Twitter, Iger uh, said, said a modest celebratory note posting a photo of the, of the Michael D. Eisner building and the, and the Disney Legends Plaza with the caption filled with, gratit- with the gratitude and excitement to be back at Walt Disney Company. Ahead of the highly anticipated town hall, Iger shook hands with division heads at the company and smiled at employees while pop covers of Disney classics, including Once Upon a Dream, uh, played in the background. He kicked off his remarks referencing lyrics from a Hamilton tune, What I Miss. There is something to the status quo. He sings as Thomas Jefferson, and the sun comes up and the world still spins. That's how I feel here, Iger said. The status quo is gone. A lot has changed, but the sun is still shining, and our world is, and our Disney world is still spinning. Among Iger's key points, Disney is, a pow- is powerful enough to compete on its own. He poo-pooed speculation that he has already cropped up about the possibility of selling Disney to a tech giant like Apple. Such a move would end Disney's history as a standalone entertainment company. But Iger long had, had close ties with Apple and its late co-founder Steve Jobs, who launched Pixar before Disney acquired it. What you've read about in that regards is just pure speculation, Iger said. He also downplayed the idea of pursuing more acquisitions, like the ones he orchestrated for Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and 21st Century Fox, saying he thought the company's collection of brands was strong enough already. At the same time, Iger acknowledged that Wall Street is no longer satisfied with the mere subscriber growth at the company's streaming service, Disney+, Plus, which had been the focus of investors and analysts when Iger stepped down in early 2020. Iger's stock, uh, Disney stock has dropped about 40% since January. During the four, uh, fourth fiscal quarter, Disney's streaming business lost $1.5 billion, even as Disney Plus gained 12 million subscribers to reach a total of $164 million. Disney stock fell 3% to $95.69 in Monday trading. Iger noted that investors now want streaming to be profitable and it's and that it's the company's responsibility to deliver value to shareholders. 
In terms of the content Disney produces, Iger returned uh, to his emphasis of quality over quantity. Iger has wasted no time making waves at Disney. Last week, he ordered a restructuring of the company to undo the, Chappic, the way Chappic had reorganized the business. Chappic split content decisions from distribution strategy, severing decisions over what gets made from how it gets seen. As a result, the head of the distribution group, Kareem Daniel, was fired. On the hiring freeze, Iger suggested that it was early, uh, early days, but, it, but that such measures might, made sense to control costs. It felt like it was a wise thing to do in terms of the challenges, and at the moment, I don't have any plans to change it, he said. Iger is expected to stay at the company for two years, during which time he's expected to groom his replacement. That was Disney Won't Sell to Apple by Ryan Founder from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 29, 2022. All right, now here is an article from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for uh, November 22, 2023, Tuesday, November 22, 2023. Walking in the Shoes of a Legend. Gabriel Abel didn't overthink his Fableman Spielberg role. Instead, he used it as a learning opportunity by Gary Goldstein. It can be daunting enough to portray a living legend on film, but when that icon is with you every day of shooting, watching your every move, that can evoke next-level anxiety. But for rising young actor Gabriel LaBelle, who plays a teenage version of Steven Spielberg in the director's semi-autobiographical drama The Fablemans, the casting coup proved more inspiring than nerve-wracking. What an opportunity and what an education it was, enthused the Bell 20 of playing budding filmmaker Sammy Fableman. The Vancouver native and new West Hollywood resident added, The universe aligned in a very specific way for me. That education included the chance to act alongside such heavy hitters as Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, and Judd Hirsch, who plays Sammy's mother, father, family fan, and great uncle. The Envelope recently spoke with the thoughtful and genial uh, LaBelle amid a whirlwind stretch of interviews to promote his star-making role. Question. Would you say that you're like Sammy in any way? Z answer. We both love films, and we're both trying to dedicate our lives to it. He's a little more obsessive than I am because he's going to grow up to be Steven Spielberg, laughs. I'm not so much older than Sammy, and we were both the only Jews in our town. There were Jews, but not many in my suburban Vancouver neighborhood or in my school at all. Unlike Sammy, I was never bullied by it, but you're conscious of it. But also, both uh, kids of divorce, and he's going through a lot of firsts that I'm not so far ahead of. Question. What was your approach to him? Answer. There's freedom in the fact that his name is Sammy Fableman. Then again, everything that happens to him happened to Stephen. So to understand Stephen to the best of my abilities, I wanted to know what story he was trying to tell in each of the characters. The tone of it all, and how he felt as a person. In terms of duplicating his speech, I didn't bother because who would know what he talked like 60 years ago? And also, he didn't want that. But I wanted to emulate him physically as best as I could. There's freedom behaviorally if you're not quite as conscious of being him. But you also don't want to mess up his story. It's a big responsibility to any movie, but especially for someone like Spielberg to open his heart and his mind out uh, to the world like that. It's very significant. You want to do your best. 
Question. As someone who was born in 2002, how did you prepare for playing a child of the 50s and 60s? Answer. I asked Stephen what movies he watched when, I was, when he was that age, which what inspired him. I tried to watch as many of those as I could. But the big culture change to learn was what it meant to be a man in the 50s and 60s, the expectations you had to be the head of a family, and the fact that nobody really got divorced back then. You tucked your shirt in, you combed your hair, and it was a lot more formal and almost repressed. People were, all, were also weren't that articulate with their feelings. Stephen is very emotionally intuitive, and so it's difficult being that character of feeling so much and feeling what other people around you are feeling, but not being able to talk about it. Question. As a relative newcomer, you act here against some formidably talented and experienced actors. Talk a bit about the wor about working with Judd Hirsch and that sense in what uh, great uncle Boris gives Sammy that torrent of life-changing advice. Answer. Judd's character is pretty much expo uh, exposing Sammy. It's the first moment where Sammy starts to feel shame that he doesn't love filmmaking more than anything. But he's never thought about it. And to realize he does is really scary and uncomfortable. For this person to just kind of look into Sammy's brain and show him everything he didn't even know was there, it's significant, and it's very weird. Weird, And Judd does a great job making you feel weird. But he's just so good, and you just kind of sit there and take it. Question. You have so many wonderful moments opposite Michelle Williams, particularly when Sammy shows his mother the incriminating camping trip footage. Did you draw on anything personal? Answer. That was just talking to Stephen, understanding how he felt when he did that in real life. Sammy's been vilifying his mother for weeks, and he wants her to be this villain. Then he realizes she's not, and he starts understanding how badly she feels seeing the footage. He wants to protect her, but then he doesn't know where to put his anger. That was Walking in the Shoes of a Legend by Gary Goldstein from the Envelope section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 22nd, 20. 22. All right, now here is something from a site called polynews.org. And this is called Ivanka and her family were spotted leaving their Miami condo with suitcases in hand amid their her dad's scandals with the New York AG. By Andrea Thompson for Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. There's no denying that things are heating up for the corrupt Trump family in a bad, quick kind of way. Between the numerous lawsuits that have hammered the family from every direction uh, for the past year to the January 6th House Select Committee that's currently making it damn clear they mean business to the mounting investigation by the New York Attorney General Letitia James and the Manhattan Attorney General's office that's currently gaining a significant amount of steam as the probe into Trump and his business's financial schemes uncovers so pretty staggering stuff that's beyond bad news for, for the former guy. With regard to Attorney General James's investigation specifically, things have reached a fever pitch at a rather alarming rate after James issued subpoenas for Donald Trump's children, Ivanka and Don Jr., just a couple of weeks ago, and then announced this week that their investigation has acquired enough significant evidence pointing to financial fraud directly from the former president that she is moving forward with efforts to force Trump himself to testify in the probe. Uh, to say the very least, I can only imagine that the Trump family's nerves are just about shot over this ordeal, and it's far from over. So with that being said, this report from the Daily Mail has certainly left us wondering what Ivanka is up to. 
New photos reported by the publication show Ivanka and her family leaving the Miami condominium with tons of luggage and suitcases in tow. Ivanka, her real estate developer husband Jared Kushner, and their three children left their Art Miami Surfside residence late Wednesday evening and entered a black SUV as staff loaded suitcases into the trunk, the report reads. The Daily Mail's report notes that it was unclear where the high-profile family was headed with their suitcases. However, they looked to be dressed comfortably and in relatively good spirits with smiles on their faces. Overall, I'm not saying they're a flight risk, I'm just saying that timing is absolutely spot on. And that was Ivanka and her family were spotted leaving their Miami condo with suitcases in hand amid her dad's scandals with the New York Attorney General by Andrea Thompson for Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. From the, from the site polynews.org. Okay, now let's start reading some articles from this publication called The Jewish Home for November 17th through the 30th, 2022, Volume 1, Number 4, your favorite bi-weekly family read. And we go to a section called The Week in News, and uh, this, is a, this is a global news article, Apple Struggling with Demand, Author Unknown. It's not easy producing parts of the world's most coveted item while working in China, a country that has some of the harshest COVID rules in the world. Foxconn, a supplier for Apple, has to comply with Chinese restrictions while ensuring that Apple's shipments are, n are not severely disrupted just before the key holiday season begins. The Taiwanese company, which has been racing to control a COVID outbreak at its vast campus in the Chinese city of Zhenzhou, has started recruiting for the facility once again and is offering bonuses for staff who had recently left. This week, Apple said it expects iPhone 14 shipments to be hit by China's COVID curbs, which have significantly reduced capacity at the Zhenzhou facility, the world's biggest iPhone factory. The epidemic has disrupted our work and life, but the company has achieved milestones result, milestone results in the current epidemic prevention measures, Foxconn said on its Zhenzhou recruitment WeChat account Monday. Anxious workers had reportedly fled the lockdown facility. Videos of many people leaving Zhenzhou on foot have gone viral on Chinese social media in recent days. Foxconn is now dangling bonuses to entice workers to get back to work. If they return, staff who left between October 10 and November 5 will receive a one-off bonus of 500 yen, $69, according to the company. New workers will be offered a salary of 30 yen, $4 per hour, according to the Post. Last Wednesday, Chinese authorities imposed a seven-day lockdown on the manufacturing zone that houses the Foxconn plant. Workers will be able to start their work as soon as the district-level lockdown is lifted, Foxconn said in the WeChat post, at which point employees will be collected and driven to the factory for a closed-loop system where staff will work and live on site. That was Apple struggling with demand, a global news article. Here's another global news article. North Korea launches more missiles, author unknown. North Korea fired four short-range ballistic missiles off its west coast Saturday morning, and hours later, two American B-1B supersonic strategic bombers flew over the Korean peninsula in the first deployment of its kind since 2017. North Korea has launched as many as 85 missiles this year, and more than in any previous year, 
including 23 fired last Wednesday. It not only tested a new intercontinental ballistic missile under development, but fired a flurry of short-range missiles to counter the United States and South Korea as the Allies stepped up joint military drills. One such drill, codenamed Vigilant Storm, which involved about 240 warplanes from both allies, ended Saturday after a six-day run. The drill was scheduled to end Friday, but was extended a day after North Korea launched an ICBM on Thursday. The four short-range ballistic missiles Saturday flew 81 miles, according to the South Korean military. North Korea has typically protested joint military drills by the United States and South Korea, accusing them of preparing to invade and cited them as a reason that it was building its nuclear arsenal. But this year, its reaction has been more aggressive. It has fired a burst of missiles during such joint military drills by the Allies, launching them from across North Korea, by sending them from many different locations, even from an underwater silo. The North sought to demonstrate that it could thwart the Allies' missile defense system, military experts said. Three times since early last month, North Korean military aircraft have flown close enough to the border with South Korea for the South to scramble its own fighter jets. North Korea has also fired hundreds of artillery shells and rockets into buffer zones north of the inner Korean maritime borders. North Korea may have gained a sense of empowerment from its growing nuclear arsenal, becoming increasingly daring in its military provocations, analysts said. South Korea and the United States demonstrated their own combined air power of superiority this past week with warplanes conducting record 1,600 sorties from the New York Times. That was North Korea launches more missiles, author known from the, uh, a Global News article. This is an Israel News article, U.S. Wants Two States. Author unknown. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas spoke with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Friday, demanding the Biden administration compel Israel to stop various attacks against Palestinians. According to State Department spokesman Ned Price, Blinken and Abbas discussed joint efforts to improve the quality of life for the Palestinian people and enhance their security and freedom. Price said Blinken further reaffirmed our commitment to a two-state solution. Price added that Blinken underscored his deep concern over the situation in the West Bank, including heightened tensions, violence, and loss of both Palestinian and Israeli lives, and emphasized the need for all parties to de-escalate the situation urgently. According to the official Palestinian news agency Wafa, Abbas briefed Blinken on Israeli attacks against the Palestinian people, including the blockades, extrajudicial killings, home demolitions, and settlement construction, in addition to settlers' violence and violations carried out against the occupied city of Jerusalem and its Muslim and Christian holy sites. The IDF is in the midst of an anti-terror offensive, mainly in the West Bank. The campaign has resulted in more than 2,000 arrests in near-nightly raids. More than 125 Palestinians have died in the raids. Many of those were killed while carrying out attacks or during clashes with security forces. Some were uninvolved civilians. The IDF's anti-terror offensive in the West Bank was launched launched following a series of Palestinian attacks that killed 19 people earlier this year. An Israeli man was killed in an attack in Hebron last Saturday. Another woman was killed in a suspected attack in September. And four soldiers have been killed in the West Bank in attacks and during the arrest operations. 
President Joe Biden has been one of the first American leaders to not pursue a peace initiative. During a closed meeting with Palestinian Americans on the UN sidelines in September, Abbas revealed how he scolded Blinken, calling him a little boy for failing to use his bully pulpit to coax Israel into making peace. That was Israel, U.S. wants uh, two states for an Israel news story. And this is a national news story. Nicole Nears, Florida, author unknown. Subtropical storm Nicole quickly took aim at land after it formed in the southern western Atlantic on Monday, prompting a hurricane warning for portions of the northwestern Bahamas and a storm watch along the east coast of Florida as forecasters said it could reach hurricane strength by midweek. Nicole was forced to approach the northwestern Bahamas on Tuesday when it was expected to strengthen a move near or over those islands Wednesday, meteorologists said. The storm, which was packing 45 mile per hour winds Monday evening, will head toward Florida's east coast as a hurricane by Wednesday night. In preparation, the government of the Bahamas issued a hurricane watch that was upgraded Monday afternoon to a hurricane warning for the northwestern Bahamas according to the National Hurricane Center. Three to five inches of rain was expected across the northwest Bahamas and central and northern parts of Florida from Tuesday through Thursday, with up to seven inches possible in some locations. The warning, which means that hurricane conditions were expected within 36 hours, included Abaco, Berry, Bimini, and Grand Bahama Islands. A tropical storm warning anticipated, anticipating tropical storm conditions was in effect for the Andros, New Providence, and Eleuthera Islands. In the United States, a hurricane watch anticipating possible hurricane conditions within 48 hours was issued for the east coast of Florida from the Volusia Brevard County to line to Hallandale Beach north of Miami in Broward County and for Lake Okeechobee in the southern part of the state. The storm is expected to strengthen into a Category 1 hurricane as it approaches the Florida Peninsula, said Jamie Rome, acting director of the National Hurricane Center in Miami. The worst of the impact will be coming ashore during the day on Wednesday and possibly lingering on Thursday, Rome said. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida on Monday declared a state of emergency for 34 counties that could be in the path of the storm, cite the New York Times. That was Nicole, Fears, Nicole Nears, Florida, a national news story, author unknown, and those are all articles from the The Week in News section. Here's some other articles from The Week in News section. This is a national news story, The Future for Adidas and Nike, author unknown. Adidas and Nike have lost billions of dollars in revenue after severing alliances with certain celebrities who are unapologetically anti-Semitic. Now executives are surveying the damage that the companies are facing after losing those deals. The road back to normalcy will be much rockier for Adidas than Nike. Adidas's breakup with rapper and designer Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, over his outbursts ended one of the most lucrative sneaker arrangements in the industry's history and left a gapping hole in the company's earnings that may be as large as $251 million. Nike's suspended its shoe line with basketball star Kyrie Irving after he refused to disavow anti-Semitism. Adidas CEO Casper Rorsted is on his way out. His successor will now have to figure out how to sell Yeezy designs to customers without br the brand name and whether to rethink celebrity partnerships, 
all while contending with global supply chain snags and declining market share in China. Adidas became heavily dependent on Yeezy since hitching itself to the celebrity in 2013. The Yeezy line grew out to almost $2 billion in annual sales, or about 8% of Adidas' total revenue according to analysts. Premium pricing gave the collection high margins, and it represented more than 40% of profit at Adidas according to Morgan Stanley. Executives who are expected to tell investors how they plan to mitigate that shortfall on an earnings call this week. The saga of Ye, not just with Adidas, but with brands like Gap and Balenciaga, underlines the importance of vetting celebrities through thoroughly and avoiding those who are overly controversial or unstable, Neil Saunders, an analyst at Global Data uh, Place, noted. Companies or brands that fail to heed this will get stung, especially if they become overly reliant on a difficult personality to drive their business. In 2019, Nike Executive Chairman Mark Parker singled out the Kyrie shoe line as a key piece of the company's basketball future. Nike had planned to release the latest version of his signature sneaker, the Kyrie 8, this month. But now that's cancelled, and the company hasn't yet said what it'll do with the excess inventory. Irving's shoe deal is set to expire next year, leaving Irving behind won't hit the company as much as Adidas. Nike has several big basketball stars signed to long-term arrangements, including LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. It also has the sneaker world's biggest celebrity asset, Michael Jordan, whose Jordan brand generates more than $5 billion in annual revenue for Nike. Celebrity and athlete partnerships come with inherent risk for the companies that work with them. Even a one-off advertising campaign ties a face to a brand. Even so, it's rare to see them explode with such potency. Often the worst that happens is that a spokesperson apologizes after a gap, and it's back to business as usual. But Ye and Irving were unapologetic when confronted with their anti-Semitic comments, going so far as to double down on their views. That was the future for Adidas and Nike, a national news story, author unknown, and this is called That's Odd News. And the article is called, Do Bees Have Fun? Author unknown. It's busy, uh, it's busy work being a bee, but that doesn't mean it's all work and no play. A study recently published in Animal Behavior notes that bumblebees, when given the chance, like to fool around with toys. Researchers from Queen Mary University of London conducted an experiment in which they set up a container that allows bees to travel from their nest to a feeding area. Along the way, the bees could opt to pass through a separate section with a smattering of small wooden balls. Over 18 days, the scientists watched as the bees went out of the way to roll wooden balls repeatedly, despite no apparent incentive to do so. The findings suggest that, like humans, insects also interact with inanimate objects as a form of play. Also similar to people, younger bees seem to be more playful than adult bees. This research provides a strong indication that insect minds are far more sophisticated than we might imagine, Lars Chitka, a professor of sensory and behavioral ecology at Queen Mary University of London, who led the study, said. Other studies have shown that bees will learn new tricks for food and other rewards. Scientists are noting that bees' ability to play is proof that these insects actually 
can actually experience feelings. They may actually experience some kind of positive emotional states, even if rudimentary, like other large fluffy or not so fluffy animals do, the study's first author, Samade Galpayaj, said. We can't believe it. That was do bees have fun? From a, that's an odd news. That's odd news section story. That is. Here's another. That's odd news article. Side dish seltzer. Author unknown. For those who like to drink their side dishes, this drink's for you. Drink company Arabora is now offering green bean casserole sparkling water. Want to know what it tastes like? The beverage has a sweet, earthy, and buttery flavor, and it's like taking a bite out of a perfectly crunchy, succulent green bean. Yum. The company thought that their consumers would be excited to drink and not just eat their favorite foods at their Thanksgiving meal. According to the company's CEO, everyone knows side dishes are the best part of a Thanksgiving meal. So we upped the ante. Green bean casserole was inspired by Araboro superfans who love daring and unassuming sparkling water flavors. We like to say our green bean casserole is better than your mom's. I hope you think so too. The refreshing sparkling water is set to come out on November 8 and is only available to select customers. Or you can just drink a shriveled green bean, dunk a shriveled green bean into your glass at your Thanksgiving meal and enjoy that refreshing taste. That was Side Dish Seltzer, author unknown, and that's from a That's Odd News article. And those are more articles from the Week in News section. Right, now here's some articles from a section they call Around the Community. Starting with this one, Hillel honors teacher Allison Handelis, author unknown. On June, 20, on June 14, 2022, the, Hebrew, the Hillel Hebrew Academy community lost a one-of-a-kind friend, mentor, teacher, and mother. Maura Allison Handelis was a pillar of, in Hillel's early childhood with a deep passion for natural play and hands-on learning experiences. She was training to grow this program at Hillel Hebrew Academy through, uh, through new curriculum and equipment. To continue Allison's important work, the Handelis family and Hillel have spearheaded the Allison Handelis Living Legacy Project to enhance the child engagement uh, spaces at Hillel. A new notable sensory station will be inaugurated to encourage interactive play and exploration. Additionally, we have commissioned artist uh, Joel Amit to create a beautiful art installation featuring hundreds of individual hand-painted butterflies that come together to create a larger, a larger image. The wall sculpture will be proudly displayed in the newly renovated Maura Allison Handela's Family Welcome Center, Doheny Lobby, where Allison's memory and legacy will shine each day brightly on all students and families entering campus. It will be, a, it will be visible from Doheny, where passers-by will enjoy the lively and engaging artwork and bask in Allison's continuing warmth and energy. A few weeks ago, artist Joel Amit flew in from Israel for the kickoff event, where he signed contributors' names on their butterfly of choice. The first signatures were those of Alex, Noah, and Isabel Handelis in loving memory of their dear mother and loving wife. Construction is underway for the Mora Allison Handelis Family Welcome Center with completion in the coming months. The community is invited to a grand opening and dedication event upon completion. 
there will be another uh, another special butterfly signing for our families who dedicate 12 butterflies or more over the next few weeks. This unique project allows anyone to continue her vibrant legacy, share memories, and pay tribute to an amazing woman. To learn more, visit www.givebutter.com slash Allison's Legacy. That's Hillel Honors Teacher Allison Handelis, author of Unknown. This next one is called Friendship Circle Partners with the Students for Phonathon. Leading up to the annual Walk Number no. 4 Friendship LA, Hillel Hebrew Academy's 7th grade girls and Shalhevet High School's 9th grade class partnered with Friendship Circle LA for a Phonathon and Hesed Day. These Hesed Days culminated in raising awareness and funds to provide friendship and inclusion for individuals with diverse abilities. The students met, their, met the team, learned about Friendship Circle and the tremendous impact they, have, they could have as volunteers. After an inspiring session, the students were handed call lists and scripts in which they avidly stepped up to make calls, encouraging community and family members to donate both, school, both schools raised impressive amounts with Hillel raising $3,745 and Shalhevet raising $4,690. The students left inspired by such a meaningful morning and the funds uh, they were able to raise. It was a huge success for both FCLA and the local schools to be able to teach students the importance of stepping up for friendship, inclusion, and the greater Jewish community. That was Friendship Circle Partners with Students for Phonathon, author unknown. Here's another one, Maimonides Welcomes the IDF, author unknown. It's always a highlight to have IDF soldiers come visit Maimonides. The students look forward to welcoming them on campus and creating cards thanking them for pro protecting us and uh, Shabbat Shalom. The streets were aligned with students and parents greeting the Hayalim and parading with them to the school-wide assembly. It is truly beautiful to see how the kids received the soldiers. We are so thankful to all the parents who came out to celebrate and applaud them today. Special thanks to the FIDF for bringing us this special day year after year. That was Maimonides Welcomes the IDF, author unknown. And uh, this next one is called Link Shul Host Special Mother-Daughter Kumzitz, author unknown. The Link Shul hosted a special mother-daughter kumzitz in honor of the yard site of Rochel Iminu on Sunday night, November 6, at the home of Ben and Neva Taylor. Daughters of all ages accompanied their mothers and retreated to a delicious meal and desserts, taking place in the backyard of the Taylor's home. Mrs. Taylor presented a masterful shiur on the significance of Rochel Iminu to our generation. The highlights of the evening was the beautiful sing-along kumzets led by the renowned Mrs. Rachel Rose on the guitar. The evening was organized by Mrs. Dina Ram, the dynamic and creative director of Link's youth activities. There was Link's Shul host special mother-daughter kumzets, author unknown. This next one is called Valley Torah High School Fundraisers with Run Believable. Author unknown. Valley Torah High School girls, a division students, were up early this Sunday uh, to pre preparing for the VTHS Run Believable 10K Run. The starter's gun, actually an air horn in this case, blew at 9 a.m. and they were off. Meanwhile, the boys' division students were finishing 
Shaharis and preparing for for Shewer. Their turn to run the cars at Sherman Oaks Park started at 11 a.m. that morning. There were uh, there was beautiful weather for both groups, and many of the Rabim and staff members joined the students. There was a 5K option for those who chose to run it. Many of the runners trained for over a month to reach their goals. Everyone enjoyed the camaraderie and the challenge. They were able to get some exercise and raise over $10,000 for the Valley Torah Scholarship Fund. That was Valley Torah High School fundraises with Run Believable, author unknown. This next one is called Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov or Eliyahu celebrates an evening of Hakaras Hatov. Parents, staff, and friends of Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov or Eliyahu gathered for our cocktails, hors d'oeuvres, and pleasant conversation in a transformed YAYOE courtyard this week to celebrate an evening of post-pandemic Hakaras Hatov. The evening honored uh, three communities, three community members who helped YAYOE through the difficult pandemic period. Dr. Ellie Goldstein, clinical professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist at David Geffen School of Medicine, who spent hours crafting the proper response to each positive test result. Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner, senior rabbi and director of spiritual care at Senior Sinai Medical Center, who spent two years on the front lines of pandemic response and Dr. Michael Avi Helfand, Brendan Mann Foundation Chair in Law and Religion at Pepperdine Caruso School of Law, who used his expertise to help YAYOE negotiate the maze of government regulations. The program began with YAYOE's annual cash drawing. Congratulations to the Rabbi Taylor Hased Fund on winning the $10,000 cash prize and to Mrs. Janice Furman for winning a pearl necklace. It continued in the, in the spacious YAYOE auditorium with the heartfelt yet entertaining reminiscence of Dr. Elliot Berlin, who was then joined by his sixth grade son, Avraham Yehuda, for some witty repartee about YAYOE life during COVID and its aftermath. A moving video presentation then told the story of YAYOE's response to COVID from 2020 to the present, from the perspectives of the administration, teachers, parents, students, and of course, the honorees. It even included live footage of Zoom classes. The audience could also relive the journey through a pamphlet of actual YAYOE correspondence throughout throughout the COVID period. The evening concluded with brief words of Torah from Rabbi Goldberg, along with gift presentations to the honorees, followed by dessert. Thank you to everyone who helped make this evening a tremendous success, including the many, many people who took time from their busy schedules to attend. There was Yeshiva Aaron Yaakov, or Eliyahu, celebrates an evening of Hakaras Hatov, author unknown. Alright, this next one is called Emek Now Offers Bus Service, author unknown. Over the last 10 years, Emek Hebrew Academy, Teichman Family Torah Center, a Torah day school that has been serving the Jewish community in the San Fernando Valley for over 60 years, has seen unprecedented growth. Under the leadership of its head of school, Rabbi Mordecai Schiffman, the school has grown from under 500 students to Blai Ayin Hara, approximately 900. 
Over 250 new families have made Emek their school of choice in the last two years alone. Many of these families have relocated to the valley from the city or from out of state. There has been a growing student base that have been driving in from the Conejo Valley, Long Beach, and various neighborhoods in the city. Rabbi Schiffen believes that Emek is no longer the best-kept secret in the valley, but is now a household name across Los Angeles. With Siyata Dishamaya, especially over the last few years, we have been successful in shattering the perception that people need to go to the city for a quality education. Over 60 students travel from the city to Emek daily to facilitate some of these families, as well as those parents whose schedule does not allow for pick-up and drop-off, Emek has added bus service for this 2022-23 academic year. Emek's two new bus routes include Valley Village and Pico Robertson and significantly helps our families avoid long commute times, car, uh, carpool lines, and can save hours from their weekly schedules. The new initiative also eases traffic on campus and transports our students in a fun and safe manner. Both bus routes have a WhatsApp group to keep parents updated and informed. Parents are informed immediately upon their arrival to school and are notified of their departure from school, as well as an estimated time of arrival. Bus drivers also have a list of authorized pickups and remain with uh, all students until they are picked up. Emek is proud to offer this new service to our students and families. That was Emek now offers bus service. Author unknown. Okay, this next one is called Technology Education Initiative Kicks Up Yeshiva Yavne. Author unknown. Yeshiva Yavne welcomes welcome Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair to school this week as they kicked off their two-year technology education initiative. Dr. Stana Adair is a clinical psychologist and research associate at Harvard Medical School and a noted author, speaker, and consultant. Since the 2013 publication of her award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in a Digital Age, Dr. Stana Adair has consulted internationally about how to reap the benefits and minimize the risk of tech use for all ages. In her work with Yavne, Dr. Steiner Adair held multiple student sessions where she accumulated data to inform her research and began the discussion on tech safety and best practices. Dr. Steiner Adair also met with Yavna faculty to begin the discussion of their role in helping the students navigate their technology-dependent times. Dr. Steiner Adair concluded her visit with a parent meeting in the Yavna gymnasium. She divulged the research that she has accumulated as well as the data collected earlier in the day and spoke to the responsibility and impact that parents can have on their children through modeling best practices and proper monitoring. Yavne looks forward to the tools and resources that will be provided and the chance to implement them before meeting with Dr. Steiner Adair once again at the end of February. That was Technology Education Initiative kicks off at Yeshivat Yavna, author unknown. And this other one, this last one from this section, is called Spivak Hebrew Academy's Second Grade Receives Humashim, author unknown. Spivak Hebrew Academy second graders received their first Humash this week in a very special celebration attended by their fellow ele- elementary students in the first through, through fifth grades. The very special performance was led by Mora Devora Rauch, 
Judaic Studies teacher. Students stood on stage and sang a beautiful rendition of a song called Sweet Torah, covered by Uncle Moshi. The students sang it loud, Torah, you're my treasure, Torah, you're my guide, I hold on to you oh so strong, filled with love and pride. The students exuded this emotion as they received their first humash and hugged it with such love and pride. Then the students shared wonderful signs they made, which included why they love Hashem, along with an illustration. Students shared, I love Hashem because He created the world. Rabbi Gabriel Elias, head of school, addressed the students and wished them a beautiful mazel tov, followed by the director of the school, Cecily Weisenfeld, who led the students in singing Siman Tov, Umazol Tov, to the class. Parents will attend a reprise performance on Friday and join to, uh, to join the, in the celebration as well. Spivak Hebrew Academy is a modern Orthodox preschool through fifth grade in West Los Angeles and will be growing into a middle school in the coming 2023-24 school year. That was Spivak Hebrew Academy's second grade. It receives Humashim, author unknown, and those are all articles from the Around the Community section. And now we go on to the Torah Thought section. Parshad Haye Sarah, Too Modest, by Rabbi David Mahler. I believe that the Orthodox world, from left to right, is one in, in one is in one particular area too pious, too saintly, too from, too devout. We are too zanua. We subscribe to too exalted a level of senius. We are too modest and too private. And I believe I know why. The Navi Mikha six eight whittles the primary midos a Jew must live by down to three. He exhorts and inspires his generation to be just and have a commitment to justice. He inspires them to love kindness, to think beyond themselves, and be selfless. Finally, Micha demands that the people walk the Zinias modestly. Zinias is a major virtue and ethic for Am Yisrael. It must be one of the defining characteristics of our holy nation. So the value of Vehatznia, Lechas im Hashem Elokecha is Elokeha is clearly admirable and aspirational. But is it always? Let me explain. Abraham was a very wealthy man. We see this a few times in the Torah. Uh, first off, in the Bracha, he is given at the outset of his journey to Eretz Kinan. Hashem tells Abraham that he will bless him. 12.2 Rashi explains the nature of this blessing with one word. Mammon, money. In addition to the premise that Abraham's name would be great and that he would be a source of blessing to the world. The world's teacher of monotheism was also promised wealth. This special bracha is clearly actualized during his lifetime. One parak after, after the promise, the Torah teaches us, 13.2, that Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. And a few chapters later, we are informed, 20, 14-16, that Amalek uh, sent Abraham away with sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and a thousand pieces of silver. Finally, Eliezer, Abraham's faithful servant, says about his master, 24:35, God has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, and servants, maids, camels, and donkeys. As one can see through the different parakim quoted, Abraham's wealth spanned his lifetime. He didn't make money, lost some, and then regained his wealth again. 
The implication from the Torah is that, at least from the onset of his relationship with Hashem, Abraham was a fabulously wealthy man. He was loaded. As an aside, what's the difference between being rich and being wealthy? The great NBA star <clears throat> Shaquille O'Neal once quipped that he was rich, but the man who signs his checks is wealthy. The Torah is clear that both Yitzhak and Yaakov separately find wealth and leave, lead lives in the upper 1%. However, it is not Abraham's wealth that interests me. It's how he spends his money that I am intrigued by. There seems to be three separate instances where Abraham spends his money and a common theme emerges from all three. One can be found in Parsha's Vayira, while the, two latter, while the latter two are in Haye Sarah. From a young age, we all envision Abraham Avino sitting at the entrance to his tent, looking here and there, trying to find guests to invite into his home. Abraham is the paradigmatic Machines Oriach. He invites angels into his tent and treats them like royalty. If he makes guests feel welcome, if making feel guests welcome is the goal, money is no object. However, the Pesukim are clear that Abraham had not only a generosity of spirit, but intended himself financially as well. Extended himself financially as well. Abraham providing food and sustenance is example number one of how he chooses to spend his money. Next, at the beginning of Haye Sarah, the matriarch Sarah passes away at the age of 127. As Abraham is not a native of the land of Canaan, he must find a place to bury his beloved wife. After a negotiation with the Bnei Chet, he decides to purchase a plot in the city of Hebron, or Kiryat Arba, for Arba Miot Shekel Kesev over Laho Lasohur, 2316. 400 silver shekels in, in negotiable currency. This was an astronomical amount. The Gemara, Bava Metzia 87a, explains that each shekel Abraham used to pay for the plot was worth 2,500 ordinary shekelim. Therefore, Abraham paid a total of a million ordinary shekelim for the Ma'aras Ha-Makpela. Final example is also more subtle. After his wife, uh, died and his own productive, vibrant uh, years were coming to an end, Avram began to focus upon the future of his family. He now turns uh, his attention to procuring a wife for his son, Yitzhak. Yitzhak's wife had to be a worthy successor to his mother, for she would not simply be a wife and other, but rather a matriarch of Am Yisrael. Abraham dispatched his servant Eliezer to his ancestral home to find a worthy successor to Sarah and perfect mate for Yitzhak. Before beginning his journey, the servant took ten of his master's camels and set up with all the bounty of his master, 2410. Eliezer, according to Rashi, took coal to all of his master's bounty, meaning the rough equivalent of a blank check. Abraham rode over all of his fortune to Yitzhak and gave Eliezer the deed to show to the prospective in-laws. For the sake of Yitzhak's future, Abraham is willing to part with his entire fortune. I remember learning that a suggestion I found both dazzling and astounding. Though I do not remember the source, I remember the idea perfectly because I remember being so taken by it. In all three instances, Avram could have achieved precisely the same outcome without spending so lavishly and in such abundance. 
It seems as though Abraham makes a deliberate concession and purposeful decision to spend much more than what was necessary, much more than what would have gotten the job done. In the opening scene of the Parsha, the, spe uh, the special guests are eating to their heart's content. But they are angels. They don't really need to eat at all. Abraham uh, could have prepared anything for them, but it goes above and beyond. He also includes his entire family in the process, assigning different people specific jobs to, care with, uh, to take care of with the goal of making the guests feel as welcome as possible. When purchasing a burial plot for Sarah, it is clear that Abraham overspent. He could have gotten the real estate for a nominal sum. Ephron, the leader of the Bnei Chet, even said to Abraham that he is a prince and does not need to pay. Despite this, Abraham does not just pay, but tremendously overpays. Lastly, when attempting to orchestrate a, sh a shaduch for his son, it becomes clear that no exuberant gift needed to be exchanged, 2450-51. Perhaps a nice bottle of wine or flowers would have sufficed. What was Abraham's motive? What did he act Why did he act this way? Why did he go so far above and beyond financially in these three different instances? What lesson can be gleaned? How we spend our money often says a lot about what we value most. It makes a statement about what things in life matter most. A blank check says, I'm all in. It says, I care. Other credit card statements make these declarations all the time. However, I do not want to focus on the message you thought you saw coming. My message is not what you think. I believe that as we as a community are too modest, too sauna, with the tzedakah we, cho we choose to give. Not to the community, but to our children. They need to know that where we give speaks volumes about what we value, what is important to us. Our children need to know where we as parents choose to allocate our tzedakah funds. They need to not only know where we give, but why we give there over the plethora of other worthy options. Imagine the fruitful conversation that can be had over discussing with your kids that your family prioritizes educational institutions or supports the, indig the indigent of in Israel. Why do you give more to Tomke Shabbos than Hatzalah or Friendship Circle? Does a greater percentage of your charity go to shul or school? Do you focus on HASC or Camp Simcha? These are meaningful and enriching conversations that could and should uh, be taking place. Your children can even be a part of the decision-making process if you'd like. I'm sure they'd have thoughtful insights. Every cause is a worthy cause, but engage your children in these conversations. Don't be too private about where and why of your charity. I'm positive Abraham did not overpay for things that were not important to him, but for things that were he was unapologetic and unequivocally devote, devoted. Quit hiding these things from your children. Be proud that you give. Be proud about where and why you give your funds. Sinias, modest and privacy, is vital in so many areas in life. Just not this one. That was Parshat Haye Sarah, Too Modest, by Rabbi David Mahler from the Torah Thought section. Rabbi David Mahler is principal at uh, Jindy Maimonides Academy and the YCM Rabbi at YICC. Here's a few ads. Western Glatt Kosher, grocery meat, dairy, fish. Good food knows no bounds. With Western Kosher's full takeout section, your options are endless. 
Our food is fresh from the kitchen and ready for your table. Website is westernkosher.com. And here, VIP cleaners and tailors, free pickup and delivery, Beverly Wood, Pico Robertson, Beverly Hills. Phone is 310-235-2277. Going to the dry cleaners used to be my worst nightmare. VIP cleaners have saved me so much time with their free pickup and delivery services. Aliza H. And ladies and gentlemen, that will bring us to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. And so, until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun, saying to you, Shalom, and of course, peace.